So we are going to spend our time over the next few weeks in Romans chapter 5. You expect in this season that we will go to places like Matthew 1, Luke chapters 1 and 2, Isaiah chapters 9 and 11, for the really clever Advent people, they go to Galatians occasionally. But we're going to go to Romans chapter 5, a passage which we have covered in the past when we taught through the book of Romans. But as I prayed just a bit ago, this passage really is the root of our understanding of Advent. And so we're going to take our time through it. I'm going to read the entire section today, which extends from chapter 5, verse 12, down through verse 21. And we're going to cover the first three verses of this section. Before we do that, let me set you up a little bit. Um, Like Andy, who gave us the funny Christmas story a few minutes ago, um, it seems like every year that we look for Christmas trees, we have the same problems in one way or another. I realized as we were cutting down our too tall tree yesterday, ours was too tall too, um, that we didn't have a tree stand anymore because I had thrown ours out from last year because it molded, which was a whole other story. Um, We walked down into our uh, family room last year about two days after we put our tree up and the whole house stunk because somehow like the tree stand had molded and I had to drain it with a turkey baster because the tree was already decorated. That was another story. So um, I forgot that I'd thrown my tree stand away. So yesterday I was running around to Menards and Lowe's looking for tree stands and had the same distractions you do. Our family room is covered in giant totes right now, but the tree's up and it's standing so far. Uh, I, like you, am often incredibly distracted during this time. Uh, It got better toward the end of the day. I was doing the outside lights and Jack joined me outside and he began a discussion with me, Jack tends to be kind of a deep thinker, um, about why even people who don't believe the gospel love Christmas. It's a good question. And so I tried to act, you know, wax eloquent for a few moments as I was sticking lights up on my tree trying to compete with my neighbors. And I think it comes down to a couple of basic things. The first is that humanity everywhere, whether they've even heard the name of Jesus and understand anything about the Bible, the gospel, that they recognize that things are bad. Things are not what we want them to be. And so there's a reason that people have hope because there's this nagging notion that it shouldn't be like this. And a frustration that it is like this. Christmas or Advent season, the first coming of Christ, both explains to us why things were so bad. The Son of God would never have taken on flesh and come down to be with us if there wasn't a problem. But He took on flesh, He came to be with us to remedy that problem. And that's what Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 are all about. An explanation as to why things are the way that they are, and to what God decided to do about it. And Advent is nothing if it's not that. A longing for restoration. A hoping that that which is broken can be mended. A deep soul longing that all that the sad things that we've experienced will be reversed and come untrue. And so... Let's read together Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world... 
through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless to us the reading of his word. We love Christmas hymns, Christmas songs. My wife usually tries to find them as soon as Halloween is over so that we can get an extra month in. But I love them too. I love the message that comes through them. I wish we, frankly, sang them a little more often because the lyrics are so great. We're going to sing at the end of our time today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. One of the lines, one of the stanzas from this hymn reads like this, O Come, O Come, O Branch of Jesse's Stem. He talked about that a bit ago, this hope of life rising out of death. Unto your own and rescue them from depths of hell, your people save and give them victory or the grave. Or we read and sing and, O holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining longing for restoration. If you've lived long enough, you have learned to be frustrated with yourself. Now, we try to ease our consciences and we try to ignore it, but, but we're kind of a mess in many ways. We do things that, if we're being honest, shock us a little bit. We should be shocked that we can so easily lie. Now, we excuse it away as self-justification, but we lie. We deceive. We hide. If we're being honest, we're frustrated often at ourselves at this point that we still struggle with pride as much as we do. We're frustrated that we struggle with comparing ourselves to other people. We are frustrated that we struggle with coveting what other, people's ha- what other people have. And then the problem is we don't just live with ourselves. We live with other people. 
We see the frailty, the imperfection of our husbands and wives. We struggle with imperfect kids or conversely, imperfect parents. Our parents, especially those of us who are grown and adults now, as we grow up, we learn to see their imperfections. Our friends fail us, our leaders fail us, our nation, our government fails us, and we look at the world and we recognize just how bad it is. Our, our American culture at this point is, is reaping what it has sown with so many things coming out right now from Hollywood and government and don't think it won't touch the evangelical church. I'm sure that it will. We're recognizing that we have reaped the whirlwind and it's, it's a sad reality what we are facing. And, and we look at all this and it's ugly and it's, it's frustrating and it makes us a bit sick to our stomachs. And even if we don't articulate it, even if we don't verbalize it, and, and let me just parenthetically say that if, if we don't take time from time to time to pause to consider, to meditate. There will be these nagging things in your heart and in your head that you'll never have satisfied. So I encourage you, and I'll close the parenthesis in just a moment, you have to have quiet time, which is incredibly difficult in this culture. Quiet time to to deal with those nagging things in your head and in your heart. I'll close the parenthesis with that emphasis on encouragement toward quiet time. But, but there's this nagging stuff inside of us, nagging questions, nagging frustrations in our minds and in our hearts saying, why are things like this? Why are things so frustrating? And Paul in Romans chapter 5 helps illuminate that, gives us a lens through which we can look at the world appropriately. But he doesn't just tell us bad news. He doesn't just say, here's why things are bad. He gives us good news and says, here's how God will make it right. And so the first advent of Jesus was about hope. But being honest about what was hopeless and and bad and frustrating and wrong, but pointing us to the light in the midst of all of the darkness. And the star that pointed the wise men to Jesus, illuminated in the midst of the darkness of that day that God had sent his light into the world. And so now as the people of God, these 20 centuries later, we look back at the light which exposes the darkness and gives us hope. And so we will begin today by talking about the hope of Advent. Verses 12 through 13 answer a question. Here is the question. Why are people, including us, the way we are? The answer is because of universal death and universal sin. Now that is a cheery way to open up Advent, right? Let's talk about universal death and universal sin. Why are people, including us, the way we are? Because of universal death and universal sin. Paul says in Romans 5.12, 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. He has spent the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 clarifying that we who were formerly the enemies of God have been reconciled by the Son back to the Father. We need not fear condemnation, for if we have trusted Jesus, we have the hope of justification and the surety of coming eternal life. Even in the midst of our struggle and trial, verses 3 through 5 of Romans 5, we don't have to lose heart. For if we were formerly the enemies of God and have now become His children through the sacrifice of His Son, and the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God into our hearts, we need not fear anything. We cannot achieve right standing with God. We cannot escape condemnation through our efforts. That's what Romans chapters 3 and 4 are about. The only way that we can be justified, declared righteous, is through receiving the free gift that is granted to us in Christ. To use a theological term, Romans chapters 3 through 4 teach us about double imputation. For those of you guys who go to Christian schools, you go to your Bible teachers tomorrow and tell them you know what double imputation is. Let me define it for you. To impute something is to credit something to someone else, something that they have not done or earned. Jesus came into the world and through his perfect life and sacrifice and conquest over sin and death through his resurrection, he has perfect righteousness to offer. We don't barter with him. We cannot earn it. It can only be imputed or credited to us on the basis of faith. But you'll notice I talked about double imputation. It implies two things. We may receive the righteousness of Jesus by faith, and he takes our sin because of his love. He got something he didn't deserve, death. He took our punishment so that we could get something that we don't deserve, his righteousness, which then leads to sonship, daughtership. What is the reason for all this? This is Romans chapters 1 through 2. We are working backwards now. All of humanity, all, have rejected God and are trapped. I encourage you to spend some time cross-referencing this in days soon to come. You are reminded that in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath and we were dead in trespasses and sins. But, and this is a bit of a foreshadowing, we are justified by grace through faith, which is a gift. And then how does Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which is a section, how does it end? Verse 10 ends with the reanimation of the child of God to good works. So here's the logic. If you're connected to God vitally, 
If you are in relationship to the one who breathes life into you and maintains life, you will do good things. You will reflect the glory of the life giver. Conversely, on the other hand, if you are separated from him, you will do bad things. You will not pursue his holy will. You will not think thoughts after him. You will not reflect his gracious character. You will do the opposite. And as Paul wrote these words down, it was a reflection of his own heart, his understanding of this Roman church and of the world at large. Why do people, including us, do bad things? Why are we the way we are? Because of universal death and universal sin. The consequence of Adam's sin spread to all of us. And because we were born into the world alienated from God, the consequence of Adam's sin, we continue to commit more and more sins. Just for a point of interpretive clarification in verse 13, when Paul says that sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. That's kind of a confusing phrase. What he means is that before the Mosaic law came, when there were lots of things written down by God, specifics of things they should do and should not do, that people were not held accountable fully to those laws. And yet, people still did bad things, for we have this thing called the conscience. A sense of that which is right and wrong. So even if there is not a specific law telling you to take care of your neighbor, the image of God is stamped onto all people. And when they fail to love like they should, when they deceive and hurt, they are breaking the law. So God held all people accountable for their sins even before the law, the Mosaic law, came. But when there is a law, when there are specific laws... The breaking of those laws, the transgression of those laws is even worse. To return to the arena of parenting, this is the way we treat our kids. If we have not given them a specific command and they say to us, mom and dad, you didn't tell me not to do this. We can say to them, you should know better. Yes, I did not tell you not to stand on top of the refrigerator, jump onto the island, and elbow your brother in the head like you're a flying wrestler. And yet I have told you to love your siblings. By the way, this did not happen in my home. But the point is, we don't have to tell our children everything to do or not to do because we've given them general principles. And yet, when they violate the specific things we have told them to do or not to do, we can hold them even more accountable. So the truth of the matter is, whether people have broken specific laws, and down in verse 14, Paul mentions the transgression of Adam. Adam had a specific law that he transgressed, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was more accountable because he had broken a specific law, and he was even more accountable because he only had one. And yet all people everywhere, whether they are knowledgeable or aware of the specific commands of God, are still under condemnation because they are born into the world, separated from the life of God, alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4. 
and therefore do bad things and are accountable for their sins. So whether you are high-level accountable like Adam, who broke one specific law, or more low-level accountable for a myriad of clear sins, breaking one's conscience, all the world is accountable to God. So why are people including us the way we are? Because of universal death and universal sin. Let me pause here a moment for, for some application. I want you to look at the world this way all the time. Don't be shocked when your favorite newscaster is revealed to have done deplorable things. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked whenever your children don't do the things you want them to do. Kids, I say to you, don't be shocked when your parents yell at you out of anger and frustration. Don't be shocked, kids, when you see your parents fight and treat each other unkindly because your parents, they're sinful too. Don't be shocked when you go to school, young people, and you see your friends not desiring God, not doing the things that are in keeping with a Christian family. Don't be shocked when your leaders aren't perfect. Don't be shocked when your friends do bad things to you. Don't be shocked. And even more specifically, in this season, we have to learn to look at the world for what it really is. They don't just need to become more moral. We don't need the right political party to come in and make things right through legislation. It won't work. My brothers and sisters, the only hope for this broken world, this tragically broken world, marked by racism and hatred and greed and lust and so many other deplorable things, their only hope is to see things for what they are. And you can't whitewash it with morality. You can't fix it through legislation. The world is the way it is because of universal death and universal sin. But this is not the final word, which is what verse 14 is about. So here's the question. Will it always be this way? No. God had a plan to bring hope and restoration. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Adam had one specific law. Moses gave over 600. But everybody in between... They were accountable, right? The flood, Moses says in Genesis chapter six that even people who didn't have all these laws, the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. That's how Moses put it. And God judged the world universally. Places like Sodom and Gomorrah or Babel. This is before Moses came and received all the laws from God. God judged the world for its sinfulness. Death reigned that's dark. If you're Tolkien fans, that's, that's Mordor-like stuff. That's a land of deep darkness and tragedy. Even over those, verse 14, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who had one specific law, but there is hope at the end of verse 14 for Paul says, who was a type of the one who was to come. What's that mean? Well, we know from reading ahead that the one who was to come was Jesus. And this should not shock us. Paul didn't just make this up. 
This is Genesis chapter 3. In the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of Adam and Eve suffering alienation from the life of God, God comes to them. God pursues them because that's what grace is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, of course, in a positive sense. What did Adam and Eve deserve? Full-time alienation, which would eventually result in their organic death and eternal punishment. But that's not what they got. God sought his prodigals, seeking to cover themselves with temporary clothing, hiding from him, blaming each other. They were a mess immediately. He comes after the prodigals. He does speak words of cursing, but also words of promise. For when he curses the serpent, he tells him that one day a seed of the woman is coming and he will crush this head of the serpent, though it will cost him something dearly. A prophecy of the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who through his own death, the bruising of his heel, would conquer Satan the enemy of God, the opposer of God. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God removes them from the garden so that they will not eat from the tree of life and live in perpetual fallenness. And he clothes them in the skins of an animal, again, I believe, prophesying the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The one who was to come, Romans 5.14. This had always been God's plan. God was not shocked by Adam and Eve's sin. He fully anticipated it. We call this the covenant of redemption. Within the fellowship of the Trinity, a covenant had been made that God the Father would send the Son and the power of the Spirit to rescue fallen humanity, those who would place their faith in Him. Jesus would receive trophies of redemption, us, and we would receive salvation and worship him in joy. Adam was a type of the one who was to come because Adam's guilt extended to all humanity. Everybody came from him. He's like Jesus because as Paul will argue throughout the rest of this passage in the coming weeks as we look at it, Jesus' righteousness will extend to all who will receive him. And Paul will speak in a better than kind of way. If this, then this is better. Or in other words, if Adam's guilt extended to us in this way, how much more, how much better Is it that the grace of Jesus can be extended to all who will receive it? In the midst of the darkness, of all that we deserve for our willful sin, what do we receive if we will receive Jesus by faith? His righteousness, a reconstitution, a reanimation to the very life giver who made us so that we might be once again his sons and daughters connected to him. This is an argument from lesser to greater. 
Adam's sin extended to all humanity. What's the greater, better news? There is hope. God will bring hope and restoration through his son. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul in this passage also compares the first and second Adam, Adam the man and Jesus, the one who would come after. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And of course, we knew he fell into sin. But notice the second half of that verse. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So why are people including us the way we are because of universal death and universal sin? Will it always be this way? No. God had a plan to bring hope and restoration. And again, that's what Advent is about. A way to interpret these nagging notions in our heads and hearts as to why it's so broken, why it's so disappointing. A hoping for something better. But Christmas trees and presents and carols and wassail, whatever wassail is, it can't fix this stuff. Bing Crosby has a great voice, but he can't fix your sin. It's fun to eat a standing rib roast, but it can't fix your problem. Only Jesus can do that. And so at Advent, we ask ourselves the question, will it always be this way? No, because God had a plan to bring hope and restoration. So therefore, we, the people of God, in this season, we reflect upon all that God has done. We push back against the darkness because we reflect on what is true. We hope in the midst of the brokenness because hope has been extended to us. And we extend it to others. This is one of the best things that we can do in this season. It's very much in keeping with what we're learning from our study of the book of Acts. God left witnesses to the redemption to be found only in Jesus, his son. And so we are witnesses your frustrating mom or dad that you're going to be with soon. Your friends or siblings who have disappointed you in the past. Your neighbors, which don't seem to get it at all. This broken world, this broken country in which we live. We have the light of the good news and as we inform people that God had a plan to bring about one whose grace could extend to all who would receive him. This is the message of the gospel and we have the responsibility to, to tell other people. And yet also we have the responsibility to preach it to ourselves. For even if the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us by faith, credited to us who didn't deserve it, and even if he's taken our sin, which he didn't deserve, we are yet still in so many ways a mess. So how do you fight back against your pride? Your pride which leads you to hide. Your pride which leads you to deceive others. Your pride which often results in hurting other people. How do you fight back against your greed? How do you fight back against your anxiety? It's the same message that the lost world needs. 
the same world which is suffering from its universal death and universal sin, the message for them is the message for us. And so you fight back by preaching the gospel to yourself. Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us, to deal with my problems. And so I don't have to hide from people because my verdict is in. The gavel has fallen for me. I don't have to hide. I don't need to lie because I've already been accepted in the beloved. I don't have to fear what man thinks about me. If I don't measure up, and the truth of the matter is, one of the things you learn along the way, young people, you're starting to see this. Adults, we know it, but we don't like to admit it. We don't measure up. There's always smarter people than us, richer people than us, more holy people than us. But if the gavel has fallen, if the sentence has been given that we are declared righteous in Jesus, I don't have to compare myself to people. If my future is going to be like the future of Jesus, that I'll be raised in resurrection power like his, which is part of what Romans 6 is about and Romans 8. If that's my future, I don't have to fear money. I don't have to fear joblessness. Why? Because I have an eternal destiny which outstrips anything this world has to offer. You worried about giving gifts to your kids this Christmas and measuring up to your cousins or to your neighbors? You don't have to. You have a better gift. Do you fear the future because you don't know what's going to happen with tax legislation or governmental leaders? You don't have to. You have a king, and he is the Messiah, the one sent from God, and the government will one day be on his shoulders, and he's wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of my brothers and sisters, as you struggle with your own sin and struggle with the sins of everybody around you, preach the gospel to yourself too. It is your hope in this season. So may we use the lens of the word and the power of the spirit to interpret the world rightly, to interpret ourselves rightly, and then to push back against the darkness that we see in other people and that we still sense inside ourselves. And let's look to Jesus, the one who was to come, God's plan the one who came to rescue us, to bring us back to God so that we would no longer be alienated from his life, but instead would live in peace and harmony and holiness for his glory and for our peace. Let's pray.